Hey listeners, my name is Meg and I'm a volunteer here at Cellbox Church. I want to welcome you to our podcast. I love that the teaching here isn't about flashy gimmicks or hidden agendas. It's all about diving deep into thought-provoking, Jesus-centered discussions. We're glad you're here and we'd love to get to know you better. So please don't hesitate to reach out with your prayer requests, questions, and comments at our website, saltboxchurch.com. Good morning. Wes, thank you for your leadership up here. It's good to be here. It's good to praise the Lord Jesus. It's good to be in a country where we can praise him without fear of someone barging through the door and getting us. Amen? Amen. Um, I have a couple of things. I'm in Acts 17. Look at that. They're ahead of us. Um, I am uh, headed that way, but a couple of things before I get there. Um, we have small groups that are launching. I think it's February 12th. We sent out an email with a link. If you want to lead a small group, we would love for you to consider leading a small group. We're doing a training coming up. If you can host one and can't lead one, we can talk about that. But we are a ton of people that want to get in small groups, and we need um, some leaders. So consider that, prayerfully consider that um, as you walk out of here. If you didn't get that email link, pop by the welcome table and tell them, and they can get you connected. Uh, Second thing. when you're coming here to Saltbox, if you're new, I would say to you, try five. And here's what I mean by that. If you've, if you've been, this is your first time or your second Sunday, I'd say try five Sundays. And if at the end of that, this isn't your church or this isn't your home, be at peace. That is okay. We would actually love to make a recommendation to you of some other great cities or other great churches in our city that lift up and <laughs> preach the name of Jesus. <laughs> this is what happens when you ask the pastor to do announcements before his sermon. <laughs> Uh, Matt Beatty was sick this morning, so they handed me announcements. <laughs> so anyway, um, try five. Uh, we're glad you're here. If you're new, we're glad you made it out on this cold Sunday. Um, last thing, I oh, two additional things. Um, Saltbox Connect next Sunday after church. If you got that in your email and want to come, that's like a membership pathway. You can find out more, ask questions, hear our story. It's just kind of a just a humble, easy lunch where we talk and interact. You can sign up at the welcome table, or if you got that link, you can sign up there. We'd love to know you're coming. Kids are welcome. We just want to have lunch for you. Okay, last thing, Lent. Lent is coming up. Does anyone know what Lent is? Like four people, wow. <laughs> So uh, it is interesting. I have historically, um, Abby and I have his- historically started a new year with some part of season of fasting. And this year, as we prayed and our staff prayed, we felt uh, just a sense from the Lord that we ought to um, fast during Lent. So Lent starts on Ash Wednesday, which is February 14th this year, and it ends on um, Holy Saturday, like right before Easter Sunday, which is March 30th. So it's like a 46-day like run. But what's kind of cool during Lent is you traditionally take off Sunday. So you give up a few things, but guess what you do on Sunday? You get all that stuff back and you just kind of enjoy it. Now, here's what's really important, really, really important. We are inviting you to fast with us as a church, okay? This is an invitation. It's challenged by choice. It is totally up to you, but it's very important that you understand you are not fasting to earn the grace of God or the pleasure of God or the favor of God, okay? That is not what fasting is about. Fasting is simply something where you uh, give up a food or a food groups or an activity or something, um, and you create a void in your life, and you intentionally fill that void with a relational time with the Lord Jesus. Does that make sense? It's very important. You're not fasting for God's grace or favor. You are fasting really because of unto a deeper, more abiding relationship with him. So uh, you'll get an email in the next couple of weeks, but it's basically going to say, hey, consider fasting a food item, a soft drink, a dessert, a you fill in the blank. You don't have to do a total water fast or a total liquid fast. Um, it'll also say, number two, consider doing a fasting something like social media or a favorite news source or nighttime television. And then, thirdly, it's going to say, consider adding something during that period of time to your daily rhythms. Maybe that's opening the Bible up and reading a psalm or a proverb before bed. Um, or maybe that's uh, spending some time in worship. But, so it's giving up some things and then it's adding some things all for the sake of abiding and knowing the Lord Jesus more fully. Does that make sense? Amen. Okay, there we are. I'm ready to shift and preach. Are you ready? Okay, we are in Acts 17. We're in the second half of Acts 17. And here is what we sort of... Um, had last week is we had Paul 
And Paul's rolling with a guy named Dr. Luke who wrote this book. He's a, um, actually a Gentile, not a, not a Jew. Um, and he's rolling with a guy named um, Silas, and he's rolling with a guy named Timothy. And um, Paul gets run out of Thessalonica, um, and then he goes to Berea, and he, the same people that ran him out of Thessalonica chase him down 50 miles away to Berea. I mean, these are some dedicated people. And he also gets run out of Berea. So he goes um, by himself to a city called Athens, which anybody know where that is? Greece, that's exactly right. So um, Athens would have been the cultural center of the world. And I want to, I'm going to... Um, really even of the Roman world. And it was a little bit like if you look at a bell curve on Athens and its greatness in terms of philosophers and even music and culture and everything that they did, this is sort of after they're beginning to descend. So they've hit their peak and they're coming down. Um, but I want to read this first um, Acts 17 verse uh, 16. Um, and then we're going to back up and I'm going to take you back to Exodus 20 very quickly and then Isaiah 44 to give you kind of a flyover um, to integrate you into the thinking, the potential thinking of the Apostle Paul. Um, and then we're going to try to like move back to the city of Athens and then we're going to see if we can make a pivot to how in the world this applies to us today. Does that make sense? You're like, that's a lot, Michael. It is. Open your Bible, open your phone, scroll along. Um, but this is like super powerful if you can hang with me. Like if you can like hang with me, this is so, so powerful. And it's like, what is this word idolatry up there? Hang with me, you're going to get it. Okay, Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, who's them? Dr. Luke, Timothy, Titus. So he is by himself in Athens, and he's almost been killed. Now, you got to also remember, Paul knows that his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, at the end of his journey was killed, crucified. And Paul, in every place he goes, he, it says in, further on in Acts, that he knows that the Holy Spirit is calling him not only to preach Jesus, but to suffering and to pain. And so here we have Paul. He's waiting for them, so he doesn't have anybody protecting him. Nobody's rolling with him. He is all by his lonesomeness in Athens. And here's what it says. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Okay, idols. Now, open a bit of disclosure in my own heart. As a young man, I grew up in a Christian home. I came to Christ at like four years old. My parents were um, wonderful pastors, and largely what they said on Sunday matched what happened in our house, um, let's see, Monday to Saturday. Um, so there was a lot of even continuity in my little world. I loved Jesus, but I would have never said um, that I could understand what in the world idolatry was. In fact, I remember even thinking as a young man reading the Bible, who would bow down to a piece of like wood or stone? And like, can you imagine? Like, it, it's just, it's a little bit foreign, uh, at least in my American kind of context. So here's what I want to do before we continue reading in Athens. I want to, or in Acts 17, in Athens here, I want to take a step back and I want to go back to Exodus chapter 20. Is that right? Exodus 20, I did that right. So this is Exodus 20. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. So you have the Israelites who have just been called out of Egypt. So they're in forced bondage slavery in Egypt. Moses has been used to powerfully deliver them. They're camped at God's holy mountain, Mount Sinai, literally right beneath it. And God has now called Moses up to the top of this mountain where Moses is actually fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, interestingly. And here is what God said in um, chapter 20. And God spoke these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. If you have any question about God's intention for you, it's to bring you out of Egypt, bring you out of the land of your slavery, your bondage. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or earth below um, earth beneath or the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of their parents. Okay, flip over to Isaiah 44. Those are some of the Ten Commandments. You can also read those, I think, in Deuteronomy 5. Um, but now I want to dip into Isaiah 44. So the Apostle Paul, remember, um, as he is walking around Athens, he was um, previously a Pharisee of Pharisees. So as a Pharisee, would he have had Exodus 20 memorized? 
probably word for word. He probably could have gotten up and just spouted it off. He probably also would have had Isaiah 44 memorized. So let's read Isaiah 44. I'm going to start in verse 14. Here's what it says. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or an oak. So what are those? Trees. Okay, so some guy cut down a tree. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and rain made it grow. Okay, verse 15. After he cut down a tree, it is used as fuel for burning. He takes some of it and warms himself. So what is he doing? Warms himself. All right, cuts a tree down, cuts it into little pieces, use some of it in a fire. I bet our homeless uh, friends, I'm looking at Tony up here who leads Living Hope, uh, but they had fires over the last few nights to stay warm, right? But he takes some of it and he warms himself and then he kindles a fire and bakes bread. Okay, so cuts a tree down, cuts it into pieces, starts a fire, warms himself, uses that fire to bake, bake, bake bread. Now, <clears throat> but he also fashions a god and worships it. Okay, he makes an idol and he bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal, he roasts his meat, and he eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I see the fire. And from the rest of it he makes a god his idol, and he bows down and he worships it. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. Okay, now, I remember being a young man, looking at this, things like this, going, who in the world is going to bow down to a rock or a stone or worship like something? And so I've had a little bit of trouble in my own journey, even going, Lord, what do you mean by idolatry? Why does this the first, second, and third commandment that you even gave in Exodus 20? And what is it and how does that relate to our lives today? Now, back to Acts 17. Paul comes into Athens and he sees a city full of idols. Okay, so there's probably, this is several levels. So are there literal images of stone and wood and temples that people are bowing down to? Absolutely, 100%. But I think there's also some other things that begin to take form and shape here. Let's keep reading. Um, and then we'll define what idolatry is, and I'm going to introduce a few additional things. Now, <clears throat> let me pause here because I want to in inject something. Uh, there was a gentleman um, who was a, uh, a non-believer. Um, he was a, a college professor. His name was David Foster Wallace. Um, he, he is no longer alive. Um, anybody ever heard of him? I saw one Chandler, I see that head shaking. <laughs> David Foster Wallace. Okay, so here's what David Foster Wallace said in a 2005 commencement speech. This is so important. Hang on with me because he is not a believer, okay? But it's a commencement speech in 2005, and here's what he says. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. Now, what do you do to an idol? Bow down and... Worship. What did we just do when they played music on stage? Worshiped. Okay. All right. The insidious thing about this form of worship is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that's what you're doing. Let me read that again to you. David Foster Wallace, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. So if you're tracking with me, you're already going, Father, what are the forms of idolatry or worship that we struggle with in 2024 America? The insidious thing is that these forms of worship are unconscious. Their default settings are the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that's what you're doing. Now, I would propose to you this morning, that's the essence of idolatry. What are we worshiping? What are we gazing at? What is the Apostle Paul talking about here in Acts 17? What is God talking about in Exodus 20 and in Isaiah 44? So let's keep reading and see if we can unfold this. Okay, he's distressed that the city is full of idols. And you know the Apostle Paul is like weak and passive and just like a total milk toast, right? So what do you think he's going to do? Just turn the other way and hang out in his hotel room, right? 
Okay, let's find out. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So what's he doing? All right, he marches into the synagogue, which is just like it'd be their place of worship. It's probably a little smaller than this room, but he's in there, and he's reasoning, talking about um, the gospel, talking about the God of the Old Testament, Jesus, uh, the God of both the Old and the New. He's beginning to introduce all of this uh, to them. And then he's also doing it in the marketplace. This is no different than you and I going to like Harris Teeter or Sam's or wherever you shop or downtown Wilmington and beginning to talk to people um, about King Jesus. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. This isn't overly important, but real quick, Epicureans basically believe everything happens by chance. Uh, the, the gods, plural, lowercase g gods, were remote. They're un, uh, uncaring. They would say that like pleasure is the chief end of mankind. Um, conversely, the Stoics, they would like say everything was God, um, and they would believe that in all of mankind is this little spark or flame of the divine, and when people died, it like returns to God, and we live in this big like circular thing, and every so often the earth resets, and then everything repeats itself. Okay? Just quick nutshell. So he gets in a debate with these two, and he's going, no, 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 King Jesus is Lord of all, um, and, then he's, and then some of them asked him, what is this babbler trying to say? So they're calling Paul a babbler. What is he, what, what is he saying? What is he talking about? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Now, who's he advocating? King Jesus. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, this is so important. The, the hinge pin or the fulcrum point of Christianity is the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ Jesus. If you don't have that, you don't have Christianity. If Jesus did not live a perfect life, go to Calvary and die, be buried for three days, resurrect, breaking the power of darkness and hell, um, resurrecting from the dead and all the eyewitnesses who saw him rise and wrote about him. And then he, if he didn't ascend back to glory where he is crowned, that's like the coronation or the ascension of Jesus, where he takes up his rightful spot again as the king of glory, we don't have Christianity. Follow me? Okay, so that's what Paul is preaching, verse 19. Then he took them and brought him to a meeting. Uh, they, they, then they took him, Paul, and brought him to a meeting of the um, Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Now, the Areopagus is like a big stone rock. I've never been there. Has anybody been there? Come on. David, you've been there? That's awesome. Okay. Um, so I'd love to go, but apparently on this big stone is actually a metal um, in, inscription or like set into the stone, and it's actually Paul's sermon that we're about to preach. Now, this is a little bit of an aside, but I think it's worth mentioning, especially if you were here last week and heard my sermon last week about B. Berean. Um, Areopagus uh, translates Mars Hill. Okay? So you're like, who cares? Well, let me tell you. There's two really interesting churches in the United States over the last 20 years, really 30 years, that have been named Mars Hill. One was pastored by a guy named Rob Bell, who was a, a great young pastor, but he moved from Christianity into more of a universalistic approach and kind of abandoned the, the more narrow way um, that I would say is it lends itself to King Jesus. Okay. The other thing that is interesting is there's another church called Mars Hill that was out in Seattle, pa uh, pastored by a guy named Mark Driscoll. Has anybody ever listened to that podcast, The Rise and Fall? If you haven't, it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's worth listening to but it, because it's a commentary on the dangers and the risk of what's happening in the American version of the church today. Okay? And I only point that out because it's fascinating to me that people took this place where Paul is preaching against idolatry and they named their church after it and then practiced the very thing that they were trying to. I, th I think what I'd say in all humility here is that's also my story and your story if you're willing to admit it. Okay, and I'm going to invite you even more into this. This isn't a finger pointing or a blaming. No, no, no. This is a Holy Spirit of God as we look at 
Acts 17 and Athens and Paul preaching, would you sift our hearts and allow us to see the areas where we are pledging allegiance or loyalty or bowing down or giving the part of ourselves, our gaze, our worship um, to anything other than you. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 20, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would all like to know what they mean. Verse 21, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. Okay, that's Dr. Luke's criticism of Athens. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in a meeting of the Oropagus and he said, people of Athens. So he's probably standing on a huge rock. There's a meeting of the, the Oropagus, but then there's um, probably the city gathered around them. So a huge crowd, um, no doubt. Um, <clears throat> Paul stood up, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Okay. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Okay. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Is Paul making any friends? So he's standing up, he's addressing the city, he's addressing the council of the Oropagus, people are all around, and he's going, essentially, you guys are totally missing the mark, and you've got this altar to some unknown God, and I'm about to tell you about this unknown God, um, and bring the reality of the kingdom of heaven into you, because you are ignorant. Did he just say that? Yeah, no, no, is this Dr. Luke's version of what Paul said? Absolutely. But... Do I think knowing Paul's character, he said that? 100%. Okay. Let me, let me pause here. We're going to come back to verse 24. And let's see if we can sort of connect a couple of things. John Stott, one of the great theologians of the last hundred years, um, he's no longer alive, but here's what John Stott wrote. Idols are not limited to primitive societies. They are, there are many sophisticated idols too. An idol is any God substitute. Any person or thing that occupies the place which God should occupy is an idol. Okay. Covetousness is idolatry. Ideologies can be idolatry. So can fame, wealth, power, sex, food, alcohol, and other drugs. Parents, spouses, Children and friends, work, recreation, television and possessions. Now, here's the craziest thing that John Stott, one of the great, he was like good friends with Billy Graham. He's one of the greats of like the, the 19, late 1900s. And, and here's how he ends this sentence. Are you ready? What he's saying, what can be idolatry? Even church and religion and Christian service can become idolatry. Anything to which we are bowing down, giving allegiance, um, anything that is taking the place that only God can and should take. Well, let's open this up. I think we could probably define idolatry as the meeting of some legitimate need in a sinful way in our life. In other words, it's an appetite that you go to, um, or it's a thing that you go to to meet a need or fill a God void inside of you. I mean, if I took you back to the Old Testament, this is classic Genesis 25, Jacob and Esau. If you've not read that, you can go read it at some point. But Jacob sort of baits and uh, kind of deceives his brother Esau into giving him his birthright. So he sells, um, he gives everything, he bows down to his appetite of hunger in the moment, and he sells his birthright and blessing, which to us in America doesn't mean very much, but back then it meant everything. But it's the classic story of, I'm going to bow down to something, I'm going to pledge allegiance to something, I'm going to look to something other than God to meet needs in my own heart and life. Now some of you are starting to go, hmm, I wonder if I do that. Holy Spirit. I, let me just make a statement here that I think is, is just pertinent. There is some beauty 
in America and the American dream. And there's some real beauty and things that represent the God of the Bible, like totally spot on. There's some beauty about the way our country was founded and who we are and where we are. But there is also this grave risk and danger. And the grave risk and danger is we become, I become, you become the center of our own universe. And because of the way we see the world and because of the way we experience the world, if we're not careful, it can become my world and my friends and my house and my spouse and my kids and my job and my time and my thing and my leisure and my food and my... You hear what I'm saying? So if you're not careful, this thing that is beautiful can actually become something to which we bow down and give ourselves to that is not God. Now here's the thing. You and I can be Christian. You might be here and you're an atheist or you're like a non-believer or you're a seeker or you're just wondering or you're a doubter and welcome, hang on. But you might also be here and you're a Christian and you, I would say to you and to me this morning that it is very possible that we as Christians who love Jesus also simultaneously forsake our love of God and bow down giving ourselves to something that is not him. You follow me? So coming to Christ is this transaction where you are saved, you are born again, you're you're exchanging your brokenness for the life of Christ. But even after you do that, there's a journey, a daily difficult journey of taking on the character and likeness of Christ. And if we're not careful, there are things to which we can bow to meet those needs that only God should meet. Okay. There was a guy in the 1200s, and then we're going to go back to the text, and his name was Thomas Aquinas. Anybody ever heard of Thomas Aquinas? I actually really like Thomas Aquinas. He was an awesome, awesome dude, awesome guy. My little Ezra says dude all the time, and he's got me saying dude. <laughs> he saw it on Bluey where they called their dad dude, so he started, okay, dude, is the way he talks to me. And I'm saying it back to him, and now I'm saying it to you, so forgive me. Okay, uh, that was an aside. Um, Thomas Aquinas uh, lived in the 1200s, and he is known as the greatest medieval philosopher theologians, okay? Um, And he proposed, this is very interesting, he proposed that there are four typical um, substitutes for God. Now, a substitute for God is an idol. Okay, you're tracking with me. So Thomas proposed there are four typical substitutes idols or God substitutes. Now here's, and I don't know that, I am unwilling to say that this is, um, this is like totally biblically fully accurate and there's no more, but I think he's onto something, okay? So here's what he says they are. Money, power, pleasure, and fame. Fame, it gets tricky, but if you look at the way he defines it, he calls it honor, prestige, admiration, um, being liked and respected. So like, uh, let me just open that one for you for a minute. I remember a few years ago when Instagram first came out and I would post something and I'd get likes and I'd go, ooh, this is great. And I found myself seeking likes. I'm like, oh my goodness. And I I was unable in that moment possibly to see, and I hit this point where I was like, I gotta get off of social media because I recognize something in me that is trading the approval of God and the love of God and the acceptance of God and the, the relationship with God for likes. What is that in its base form? Anything that you put in a God place and bow down to, having it meet your needs is idolatry. Now, I could probably go through all four of Thomas Aquinas' things. Money, power, pleasure, fame. And I could, at different points in my life, I think there have been times and aspects where I have bowed down to those things, worshiping them as the primary meter of Michael's needs. Okay? I would bet you could do the same. Interesting, uh, a guy named Arthur Brooks just wrote a book called Strength to Strength. Arthur is a believer. It is not a Christian book. He's got a touch of universalism, so you've got to like, be real careful if you read it. But he proposes something very cool about Thomas Aquinas in that book, and I'd never heard this done before. But he said one of the rhythms he does in his own life is he looks at Thomas Aquinas' four labeled idols, and he ranks them on where he is authentically in his own journey. I'm like, Whoa. Is that fully biblical? No. But is it unbiblical? No. I mean, it is a, it's just a tool that Arthur Brooks proposes, and he says, check it out. 
So one of the things I did, I heard him say that, and I was like, wow, that's fascinating. I was reading it. So I was like, okay, where am I? Honest. This was a number of months ago. And I said, probably number one thing that I would bow down to other than God would be honor. Seeking the praise of people. And what do I do on Sunday mornings? What do you, so for most pastors and people who stand up in front of people, they're probably willing to trade um, power and money for being thought of as important or fame. Oh my, why do pastors fall? Because you start right and then you trade your love. It's like when Jesus spoke to the church in Ephesus and he says, I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. And it is so easy when you get into this church machine to stop loving the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and start bowing down to something that you think can meet your needs instead of him. Now, why am I telling you this? Because you are just like me and every other pastor that you've kicked and said, shame on you. Because every single one of us has a propensity to want to meet our needs, our way, bow down to our thing and create our own God, fashion it like Isaiah 44, right? Just so we like it. And then we're going to bow down and worship it and say, save me and meet my needs. Now, maybe yours is money. Maybe yours is power. Maybe yours is greed. Maybe yours is idolatry. You can fill in the blank. But I think the most important thing is that we as humans were created to have a God experience, a God relationship inside of us. And from that place, we were created to worship. Okay, if that, if that word is like foreign to you, if you're new to worship or seeing even a band on a stage, it's okay. But we were created to worship something. You worship a, a deity, a God, right? So we're created to do that. Now, I've got news for you. You today, right now, are worshiping something. Let me reframe this and help you understand. You were hardwired mentally, emotionally, and physically for relationship with God and relationship with people, okay? You were simultaneously hardwired to worship. Every culture everywhere for all time has sought something to worship. I could probably sit with you or get a great counselor to sit with you and in 10 or 15 minutes, we could probably diagnose what it is you have a propensity to worship other than the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is not conviction. This is an invitation to begin to call what is. If the Apostle Paul walked in or the Lord Jesus walked in and he spoke to you honestly, would there be something where he would say, that's an idol. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Let's go back. Verse 24 of Acts 17. This is Paul preaching the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. I love this. And he does not live in temples built by hands. Isn't that good? So Paul's literally saying when Jesus resurrected, the, the curtain in the Holy of Holies was rent like this, much taller though, from the very top to the bottom. So no human could have done it. It was a very thick curtain, six or eight or inches. We don't really know, but it was rent. And in that moment, the spirit of God broke forth from the Holy of Holies into the temple. And God was demonstrating actively when Jesus rose from the dead, temple uh, curtain is torn. He is going, I no longer dwell in, in in buildings built by human hands. You now are the temple. You now are the ones who take, God takes up residence inside of you. And if we could like pop over to Israel right now in this day, I would take you to the Western Wall. And if we went to the Western Wall, you would see a huge group of Hasidic Jews and they would all be um, bouncing forward at the waist in cadence with the Psalm of Ascents. And they would all be quoting the Psalms of the Old Testament. And they are at the closest place that they can get on the Temple Mount to the Holy of Holies. And the very very heartbreaking thing is God doesn't dwell in buildings anymore. 
God dwells inside of you and I as believers and his greatest longing is that you would take up your place and go, I'm no longer gonna worship the idolatry of my heart and the idolatry of my life and I'm not gonna seek my own will and way, but I'm gonna bow my knees only to the King of kings and Lord of lords and I'm gonna lay my life down and go, oh, Father, would you fill me with your spirit and as you fill me, would you transform me and would the people around me, my spouse and my kids and my coworkers experience the life-giving presence of Jesus and not some old grumpy religious curmudgeon. Amen? That's the gospel. Like, that's what this is about. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 25, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Paul's like real popular at this moment, right? They're ready to throw stones at him. Verse 26, from one man, he made all the nations. Who's he talking about? Adam, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Verse 27, God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Like somebody take that one to the bank. He, no matter how you feel today, no matter how you're thinking, no matter how you are perceiving yourself, this is the God of glory that is not far from you. He's waiting for you to reach out in response to all the reaching that he's done to you. Verse 28, I love that Paul does this. He says, for in him we live and we move and we have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul is quoting two um, totally secular um, people that they, everyone in the crowd would have known, and Paul was educated enough and quick enough to quote their own people there. Verse 29, uh, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Who's the divine being? God, King Jesus, okay. He is not like gold or silver or stone. He's referencing what? Idols. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, the ignorance of bowing down to idols, okay. <clears throat> but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. We're gonna come back to this. If you've got a Bible, circle repent. That's metanoia in Greek, repent. If you come from like old school religion and you've had somebody beat you over the head with that word repentance, I am so sorry on behalf of like Christians and church people and pastors, please forgive the person who did that to you. Because repentance is this God word, and we're gonna talk about it in just a minute, but it, but it means um, tr it's a transactional interaction where you access the risen power of King Jesus. Like I love this word. And if you've been beaten over the head with it, I am so sorry. Okay, let me finish. Verse 31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Who's the man? King Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him, who's him? Jesus from the dead. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that point, Paul left the council, and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. It doesn't sound to me like very many people responded to Paul's message, does it? I mean, they named a guy and a lady and a number. I mean, we don't know. But Paul might have gone... That didn't seem like it went very well. <laughs> but he continued to preach Jesus, not about him, right? Okay, so let me, um, let me do this. How do you recognize idolatry in your own life? Anything you put in God's place, number one. Anything you look to to meet legitimate needs other than King Jesus, number two. And then the third thing I would say, how do you know, how do you recognize idolatry, is idolatry trades the blessing and good God intends to give you in Christ, both now and in eternity, um, in the larger unseen kingdom of God for what you want in the here and now. 
And let me say that again. Uh, idolatry trades the blessing. And I, that's like a hard word to use in America because when we think blessing, we think like money and wealth. And it can include that, but it's so much bigger than that. Like the kingdom of God is so much bigger than that. Um, so idolatry trades the blessing and good God intends to give you in Christ in the larger unseen kingdom of God um, for what you want in the immediate here and now. Now, In 2011, Abby um, and I were getting married July 20th of 2011, and we were planning the wedding, and she said, hey, do you want to have a, um, a, a groom party, a um, bachelor party? Thank you, a bachelor party. I was like, what's a bachelor party? I didn't know. I don't know. And I was like, no, I don't really like parties, but here's what I would love to do. I would love to go, and I'd love to climb Mount Rainier in um, Seattle, Washington. It's my idea of a good time. I'd wanted to do it for a long time. So I went out there with a friend. We're climbing Mount Rainier. Um, we went up something called the Cots Ice uh, Chute, almost vertical ice chute. We got snowed in at 13,500 feet for like almost 40 hours. Um, we get to the top, and I had this moment. I, I want to explain this moment to you. You start climbing at like 1 a.m. You're climbing in the dark for hours. It's like an 18-hour summit day, and, and the sun starts coming up, and you can see the Pacific Ocean, and you can see mountains all the way in Oregon and Whitney down in California. Like, you can see everything. And it is so humbling. The, the, the sun just breaks forth over the horizon, and we finally get to the top of this mountain, and the weather was terrible. It was blowing 60 or 70 miles an hour, and it's like 10 below. I can't even hear myself think because everything is blowing like crazy. But at the top of Mount Rainier are these steam vents because Mount Rainier is a volcano. And so I'm standing there in this moment. I will never forget because as I'm standing there, you're on the summit like less than 10 minutes. It's like you spent all this time and energy to stand up there for 10 minutes. But I'm standing there and this, these steam vents are belching steam. And as fast as the steam comes out, the wind just takes it and whew, and I remember having this moment standing there, and I'm literally going, there is magnum lava below me. There is water that is boiling, and this big volcano, 14,000-some feet above the earth's surface, is belching out steam. And I, me, Michael Mattis, I'm looking out at the Pacific Ocean and mountains all around me and cities down below me, and I have the audacity to think that I am in control of absolutely anything. And I have this moment where I'm thinking, I think because I I bought a little piece of land, a quarter acre, and put down some footers, and we built a house and did our whole thing. I think that I own a piece of this earth, and I think I own something that I built like a church, or I own something that I built like a business, or I'm in control, or I have total um, jurisdiction over my little area. And I have this moment standing atop Mount Rainier where I went, oh my goodness, the foolishness of our American dream in some ways, and the foolishness that we think we own anything and we build anything thing and we control anything. And I remember standing up there and hitting my knees before the Lord. Nobody else even knew what I was doing, but I went, Oh Lord Jesus, I have made myself so much bigger than I ought to be in my own eyes. Would you forgive me? And would you cleanse me? And would you transform me? And father, I pray that I would not go back into all the form, various forms of idolatry that I've participated in because it is so easy. Go back to David's quote, uh, David Foster Wallace, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that you're doing it. And I'm standing atop this mountain going, Lord Jesus, would you not only forgive me, but would you help me from going back into it? Now hear me, church. Hear me, hear me, hear me. If you hear anything today, you were created for relationship with God and with people. And in that, you were created to worship. You are worshiping something now, and you are going to worship something every single day from this day until you cross over the shroud into eternity, eternal darkness or eternal light. You will cross over. You will stand before Jesus. And guess what? You're going to cross over into eternity, and you're going to worship in eternity. You were created to do this. And the thing that we as humans, as believers, have to come to grips with is this reality that you were created for relationship and you were created to worship and you can't not worship. Some of you go, oh no, I'm not worshiping anything today. You are worshiping. 
Every person, every believer, every unbeliever, everybody, everywhere, even David Foster Wallace, who was not even a believer, acknowledges that we as people were created for relationship and to worship. You're worshiping something. Now, everybody take a deep breath. Let's talk about this Greek word metanoia, and then I'm going to end. 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 30. He says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What is repentance? Are you ready? Repentance is activating the resurrection power of King Jesus to transform your inner person. It's not cleaning up the outside. It's not changing your behavior. It's not trying to fix things and make you good so you look good on Sunday or sound good on Sunday. Repentance is activating the resurrection power of King Jesus to transform your inner person. Paul would have said um, it is crucifying the sinful life or the sarks, that's the Greek. Uh, Jesus would have said um, deny yourself, deny your autos, take up your cross and follow me. He, but it's deny, it, it is it's activating the resurrection power of King Jesus in your inner person. Number two, repentance is the exchanged life. It's exchanging your brokenness. It's responding to the vast and immeasurable love of God and exchanging your brokenness for the life of Christ in you and through you. Make sense? This is not performance. It is an exchange, a supernatural exchange that happens when you get, become a believer, when you're born again. And then if you're in a Jesus journey, it happens daily. Number three, repentance is deciding that God is right and you are wrong or not. You're not right. It is, and I would say here, God, I'm sorry is not good enough. I think what this requires, true repentance, is Father God, I am wrong. I've been living in willful sin. Would you forgive me, cleanse me, and make me new? And guess what you're going to have to do again tomorrow? Same thing. It's the journey. Number four, repentance is not an emotion. It is a decisive choice. It is an act of the human will. Some of you might sitting out there, you might go, Michael, am I a hypocrite if I don't feel like it? No, you're normal. You hear me? Repentance is not um, an emotion. It is a decisive choice to align your heart and life with him, to go, Father, would you forgive me? And then the, the, the transference is this supernatural infilling of King Jesus in and through your life. It's transformation. Fifth thing, repentance is a human response from the conviction of God. The conviction of God is not angry, it is not passive-aggressive, it is not shaming, it is still and small pressure like a potter who's shaping a clay pot. Have you ever seen a, a, a potter throw a pot on a wheel? Throws it on there, the wheel's spinning, steady pressure in that potter's hands mold it and make it. That's what the conviction of God is. And it, when we as believers respond to that, it is called repentance. Amen. Number six, repentance is initial. It happens initially when you are saved or born again, but it is also ongoing as you are daily transformed in the likeness of Christ. And the last thing I would say about repentance is it's specific. Lord Jesus, would you forgive me for bowing down and worshiping the idol of money or greed or my body at the gym or you fill in your blank. I have no idea what it is, what the Holy Spirit might be convicting you of. If you're sitting here this morning and you would go, man, this is a little bit heavy. I go, it is. King Jesus came to liberate you from the things that are holding you captive, the things to which you bow other than him. And if you're willing to respond to his invitation, to his glorious love, not just giving your life to Jesus, but staying in a journey with Jesus where you're being transformed, taking on the character and likeness of Christ. That's what it means to be living in the gospel, living in the truth, living in Jesus. And that's what I want to invite you into this morning. Amen. Prayer team, if you're available, if you'll come on up here, if you're in the room this morning or if you're online and you would go, man, I've never given my heart to this Jesus. I've never made that exchange. I've never been born again. I'd love to pray with you. I'll just be hanging around right here. If you need special prayer, our prayer team's gonna be up here and around the sides. They would love to pray with you. If you hear anything today, hear 
that there is an invitation to be set free from those things that hold us captive other than the Lordship of Christ Jesus. Stand with me. I'm going to say a prayer and then we're going to worship together. Holy Spirit, would you wash over this room? Holy Spirit, would you encounter us deeply? Holy Spirit, we give you permission. Lord Jesus, we give you permission. Yahweh God, we give you permission to move in and through our hearts and lives, to convict us, to change us, to fill us, to move us, and to move us from the bondage of idolatry into the glorious light of relationship with King Jesus. Holy Spirit, we're even available to see those things that we worship that aren't you. We're going to close in a song, and then I'll pray us out. Father, thank you for the journey of life. Father, thank you for the invitation to come out of darkness into light. Father, thank you for your glorious grace, your freedom, your life, your peace, your joy. Father, thank you that you don't leave us in our own idolatry and darkness. Father, thank you that you knew us before the creation of the world and you've pursued us and you've called us out into light. And Father, I pray that we as a church could take up our place walking with you, knowing you, being known by you, and ministering with you to all those around us. Father, I pray that on this day that you would set every one of us free at a deeper level to enjoy you and glorify you and abide in your person and presence more fully. Father, we love you because you loved us. I pray your blessing, your grace, and your peace on every person here, every person online. I pray that you would fill us and send us out full of the joy of the Lord, that the very joy of the Lord would be our strength. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. If you need special prayer, we're going to be here. I don't know if we're closing in one more song or not, but we're going to be here. We love you. Stay warm on this Sunday. Amen and amen. We're so glad you've listened in with us here at Saltbox, and we'd love to get to know you better. So we hope you'll stay in touch and get more involved by joining us on the YouTube live stream. We hope you have a great week, and we encourage you to keep digging into your faith, because at the end of the day, it's just Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less.